First Corinthians 7, 3 and 4. Husbands, fulfill his, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields to his wife. I have an hourglass here. I, that's not to time my sermon, so don't get too excited, okay? But no worries, there's still a clock down front that I noticed about last week for the first time in uh, several years. <laughs> no, if you have a Bible, listen, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the second message in a three-week mini-series on sex, marriage, and singleness from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7. And so like I said last week, parents, just a little bit of a disclaimer here. Some of the things we talk about this morning will be fairly sensitive, so act accordingly and plan accordingly with your kiddos. I, I did hear from a few of you that last Sunday's lunch conversation had its fair share of awkward moments and silence. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, that's okay. I, I, I think it's so important that we talk about these things. The Bible talks about these things, and even if sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable or it's embarrassing, it's so important that we talk about these things. And so not just parents and kids, but I hope that this short series will prompt all kinds of conversations for us, because these things are incredibly important. I think it's helpful to frame what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 in the context of discipleship, because that's really what it's all about. It's not necessarily about sex marriage and singleness it's about discipleship in those various contexts it's about what it means to honor God in marriage and when you're single and when you're facing sexual temptation it means how do you live a life of a follower of Jesus a genuine discipleship a genuine disciple of Christ in these different areas and so I think it's important for us to remember the bigger picture here this is about discipleship and we need to be disciples in all areas of life and all parts of our lives so at the end of chapter 6 Paul talks about faithful discipleship when you are facing sexual temptation in chapter 7 he talks about faithful discipleship when you're married and then he'll get to also faithful discipleship when you're single we're going to talk about singleness next Sunday so today we're going to talk about faithful discipleship in the context of marriage as you can imagine, being in ministry for a while, I have attended and officiated several weddings. Like many of you, I've been to a lot of weddings. I always think it's funny the word officiate weddings. I don't, I don't know a better word, but that's what we say. We officiate weddings. And actually, some couples, some families, they needed a referee at the wedding. So it's probably a, probably a pretty appropriate term. But like you who've been to weddings, I, I see all kinds of different rituals in the ceremony to symbolize the joining together of two lives back in our day it was a unity candle you remember the unity candle it was always kind of nerve-wracking to see if it would light or not and then you know have you ever seen one that it was lit but then all of a sudden it just went out <laughs> during the ceremony that's not a good sign that's a bad sign uh, and then, you know, we did the uh, pouring the wax beads together. Have you ever seen that? Different colors of wax beads, and you pour them together. One outdoor wedding I was at, it was so hot. 
that by the time they got to that part of the service, the wax beads individually had started melting together. And so when they poured them together, it was just these clumps of wax beads. Again, I don't know if that's a good sign. I don't know how they're doing. I suspect they're doing fine. Um, and then there was the, the butterfly release. Or as I said at first service, the buffalo release. <laughs> I was trying to find the word butterfly and buffalo came out. If you ever go to a wedding and they do a buffalo release, I need to know about that. And if that is ever the case, I guarantee you it will be in Oklahoma. <laughs> One time there was a butterfly release. And let me just tell you, it's kind of a long story, but you know, a little wedding hack here. If you ever want to do a butterfly release at your wedding and you order butterflies from South America, give them plenty of time to defrost and thaw out and wake up. Otherwise, I don't think it will get the visual effect that you're looking for. I can tell you firsthand, as one butterfly left the cage and all of these butterfly carcasses were in the bottom of the cage. Kind of traumatic, really. Nowadays, one of couples' favorite rituals in the ceremony is to pour sand together. Have you seen that? Maybe two different colors of sand, they pour it together, blending their lives together. And one variation of that is to pour that sand into an hourglass. And the idea is that our lives are joining together and we will be together until time runs out. In other words, until death do us part, until death separates us. I got to thinking about that idea of an hourglass as a symbol for marriage. And I'm sorry if you're up there and it's kind of small, you can't really see the hourglass, it's more of a half hour glass or 30 minute glass, but you get the idea. I got to thinking about this as a symbol for marriage, especially these days. And I think it is a good symbol for marriage and I think the meaning has changed some for some people. And the idea now is not that as long as there is sand in there, as long as we are married, we are staying together until death separates us. In fact, did you know that in some wedding ceremonies, they have changed the vows from until death do us part to this, as long as our love shall last. As long as our love shall last. As though love was something other than a rugged commitment, a daily choice to be with this person. As long as my feelings for him or her are still high is still good as long as I'm still happy as long as our love shall last and I think that's the mindset of many people when they enter into marriage and so here's what happens we get married and we are so excited there's so many good feelings there's so many uh, passions and and all of this energy and enthusiasm and we turn over the hourglass and the clock is ticking isn't it and things are going great, but you know, research has been done, and they say for many couples, after about 18 months to two years, there is a lull. You know, there is a lull that says, wait a second, you have bad breath in the morning. You have annoying habits. Or some of these routines have become ruts. Or you know what, I'm not quite as happy as I thought I would be or as I was, and so the sand begins to run out. Time begins to run out. And I measure that by my happiness. The sand is no longer the time until death. The sand is time until I'm no longer happy with this arrangement. 
And so what is the natural thing to do when you're staring at an hourglass that has no sand in the top? The natural thing to do is to turn it over, right? And that's what we try to do in our marriages sometimes. We try to infuse life into our marriages. And so many times the way we try to do that is superficial. We will go on a trip. We need to take a vacation. We need to have a child. We need to get a dog. We need to do this. Or you know what? You have changed, and so you need to make some changes because you aren't the person, what's the rest of that? I married. So we try all of these different things to invigorate our marriage, to make it better. And so many times our measure, our standard for marital success is personal happiness. In fact, usually everything we try to do to vitalize or revitalize our marriage really comes down to me being happy. I'm not happy. I want to be happy. And so we have got to do something to make me happy. I think Scripture gives us a different view, a different perspective. I think Scripture tells us that as disciples of Christ, there's a different way to view your marriage. There's a different way to be married. It's the path of discipleship, of honoring God even in your marriage, especially in your marriage. So we'll get back to the hourglass in just a minute. I want to set up our text that way. This notion of what is the measure of marital success? Is it personal happiness or could it be something else? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, and notice the quotation marks here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, Paul says, and of course Paul's single, Maybe he's uh, a widower, but he's, he's single. He says, I wish all of you were like me, but each of you have your own gift or your own situation from God. One has this gift, another has that. All right, there is, <laughs> there's so much in here. Let's try to look at some of it. First of all, it's very clear that Paul is responding to a question that the Corinthian que- uh, Christians have asked him, probably sent to him in a letter. Remember the quotation marks? And so while some in Corinth were giving in to sexual immorality, remember chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality, while some were giving in to sexual immorality, there were others that were going to the extreme other end of the scale, and they were saying, you know what, we can show how pure we are, we can show how holy we are if we never have sex at all, even in marriage. And so they evidently thought that to abstain from sex, even in marriage, showed great depths of personal holiness and so basically what they're saying is it's it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman even his wife and Paul says no 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 
That's not the case at all. God designed marriage as the appropriate context for sex. No one should have sex, he says, outside of marriage. But of course, it's okay, even recommended, that husbands and wives have sexual relationship within marriage. He says, you need to fulfill your marital duty. Now, Paul's not a romantic. That's not exactly the most romantic way to put it. But that idea of marital duty there, that, that phrase actually has this connotation of you, you owe it to that person. It's, it's part of the arrangement. It's you owe this. It's almost like paying off a debt, that, that language used there. So he says, fulfill your marital duty. Specifically, he says, wives, you do not have authority over your body, but you yield it to your husbands. The oneness that we read about in Scripture for husband and wife, that's one of the ways that oneness is created and nurtured in marriage. Wives, you yield your body to your husband. Now, that doesn't mean that you have no say over your body or that you do anything he wants to do. It means that the covenant relationship of marriage is marked by giving rather than receiving, by yielding rather than controlling, by serving your spouse rather than serving yourself. Sex and marriage, like every other part of marriage, is about considering the interests and the needs of the other person above your own. But here's the radical thing. Here's the thing that most people wouldn't expect Paul to say. What else does he say? Now, in this patriarchal, male-centric society, women were often told, hey, your body doesn't belong to you. Your husband owns you. In fact, many times women were treated like property. And so this probably wasn't news to many of them. I don't have authority over my body. Yeah, what else is new? But Paul, what does he say? He says, guys, the same is true for you. Husbands, you don't have authority over your body, but you yield it to your wife. That is revolutionary in this day and time. Paul says, your body doesn't belong to you. Now remember in chapter 6, we learn that our bodies belong to God. And what God says to do, how we, one way we can honor him with our bodies is in marriage to yield it to your spouse. Paul steps way outside the guardrails of social norms and cultural expectations. And he elevates the status of women by saying, guys, this isn't a one-sided relationship. Your own needs and desires, they don't drive the bus. They're not the most important thing. You're not in a place of authority and power. As he said in chapter 6, God has authority over you. And God desires that you in marriage yield yourself. And that is consistent throughout the New Testament. When Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, how does he start the whole conversation? Verse 21, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He is talking about husbands and wives, wives and husbands. Now he's going to go on and say specifically, Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. But he's going to say, Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He he sacrificed for the church. He gave himself for the church. And so as wives submit as they do to the Lord and husbands love as, they, as Christ loved the church, then there's not this me first attitude. 
There's not this, you have to do this and you ought to do that. There's your needs and desires come before mine. Because it's all grounded in this idea of mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But you don't know what he's like, but you don't know what she says. No, he didn't say submit to one another because your spouse is so good or because they deserve it. He says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus is your motivation. Jesus is your model for submission. You see, mutual submission is foundational to a faithful marriage. It's so important. Paul explains that the sexual desires of husbands and wives should be met in marriage. He says, be there for each other. Don't deprive each other, except by mutual consent. That's surprising too. By mutual consent. That means both of you decide this, not just the guy says, here's how it's going to be. He says, don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a season of prayer, of dedicating or devoting yourselves to prayer. Now, you know, the guy says that his wife came in and said, we need to devote ourselves to prayer. He says, really, still? We've been praying for six months, but, you know, (laughs) a lot of prayer warriors out there. That's okay. I'll let you deal with that one on your own. Now skip down to the next section on marriage what does he say as he does so well throughout this discussion he backs up and he says let's talk about the foundational issue here let's talk about what is what is beneath the surface that gives way to these sexual ethics okay so pick it up in verse 10 to the married i give this command notice what he says here not i but the lord this comes from jesus himself a wife must not separate from her husband and then translated sort of in parentheses, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Verse 12. To the rest I say this, and notice what he says here. This is, this is me, not the Lord. Now, of course, Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he wants to make it clear what I said first about not, not separating, that comes from Jesus. These These principles now I'm giving you, they come from me, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we put this idea into practice, okay? Here's what he says. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right, Paul steps through several different minefields there, and we'll, we'll try to do the same. But I think we need to start with the foundational principle. The foundational principle that Paul brings to the surface that is consistent throughout the New Testament when you talk about marriage, and that is this. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. Marriage is for life. To wives and husbands, Paul echoes what Jesus has already said. He says, this is not just for me. This is from the Lord himself. Marriage is for life. Do you remember one day Jesus is trying to be trapped by some Pharisees. They ask him this question about divorce, and it's not that you know, they're trying to minister to someone who's going through this difficult time in their marriage, or they're just asking him about 
you know, divorced so that they can know how to help people. They're trying to trap Jesus, to get him to say something, to stumble so that they can show everyone, see, he doesn't know what he's talking about. See, he doesn't have authority. And so that's the motivation for the question. But the question is this, is it okay to divorce your wife? Matthew 19, Jesus answers the question. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's that oneness we talked about. So they are no longer two, but one or one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, you want to know the answer to your question? Go all the way back to the beginning. Go all the way back to God's design for marriage. Husband, wife for life. That is the plan. That is God's design. When you pour the sand together, you don't go in there and try to take it apart. It's impossible. When the wax melts together, you don't try to separate it. Now, in that discussion in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus knows husbands and wives, like all of us, are imperfect people living in an imperfect world. So he says, if a husband or a wife breaks the marriage covenant by being unfaithful, then you may divorce, but you don't have to. You see, sometimes repentance and redemption and restoration can be a God-honoring move in a broken marriage and can actually bring that marriage to a new place of health. But Jesus gives that what we call concession. In our text today, Paul gives a concession, doesn't he? Like Jesus, but Paul's is a little bit different. He says, if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever leaves you, you can let them go. You're not bound to that relationship verse 15 and so as both Jesus and Paul hold up the ideal marriage is for life they both recognize that life gets messy that sin takes its toll that the ideal is not always realized and yet the ideal is not out of reach and I would encourage every husband and every wife here to relentlessly pursue oneness and permanence in marriage that is God's design that is what God wants now in this text there's there's kind of some confusing language about sanctifying your spouse or saving your husband or wife or your kids being holy what does that mean I'm not exactly sure but I know it doesn't mean there's something you can do as a believer to save your unbelieving family member, right? Paul makes it very clear, the New Testament, New Testament makes it very clear that salvation comes not from anything we do. It's not humanly produced. It's something that Jesus does, that God gives us through Jesus. It's a free gift of God's grace, Ephesians 2 verse 8. But maybe what Paul's getting at here is when you choose to stay in a relationship where there is an unbeliever and you're the believer, I think maybe what he's saying here, at least partially, is God can work through that. When you decide to submit, remember, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, well, he's not going to submit to me, she's not going to submit to me. They don't even know that verse, they don't even believe the Bible. Yeah, but you control you, and so you submit to him or her out of reverence for Christ, and you show commitment, 
and you show unconditional love, then God works in that and through that and maybe brings that person through your testimony, brings that family member closer to Christ, maybe even closer to salvation. I think that's what he's saying there. But for a husband or a wife to do that, it means to look beyond self, to remove personal happiness as the measure of marital success, to see the bigger picture, that marriage isn't about what I want, it's about what God wants. It's not about what I want to do, it's about what God can do. Everything Paul says about marriage, everything he says about marriage is about giving, not receiving. I think that is at the heart of this passage. It's about how can I be a husband or a wife who yields, who submits, who gives. And that is so counterintuitive, and it's certainly countercultural. Because how often do we enter a relationship for the things that we can get out of it? I want to make me happy. You even hear brides and grooms say that you, on your wedding day, you make me so happy, and, and that's great. But if that happiness becomes the ultimate measure of the success of your marriage, what happens when you're not happy? What happens when those emotions and those feelings aren't as strong as they were back then? You see, everything Paul says here about marriage is about giving. It's about honoring God. How do you submit? Well, you submit by, first of all, saying, I'm going to do this out of reverence for Christ. So I'm going to put his or her needs, desires in front of my own. That's giving. You see, receiving, getting says, I want what I want. I deserve it. I deserve to be happy. I'm going to be happy. So I'm going to take whatever I want. So back to our hourglass. When that happens, when the sand runs out on my happiness, something inside me says, we've got to turn this thing over, right? We've got to turn this thing over. We've got to try something different. We've got to buy something big and shiny. We need to go on a trip. You need to get some help. Or I start listening to the world and that other voice inside of me that says, you know what? Maybe this just isn't going to work. Maybe it's just not going to work. And so what do I do? I connect on Facebook or social media with some friend from high school, or I notice someone at work that I've never really noticed before, and I see them through different eyes because, you know, she laughs at my jokes, or, you know, he's, he's caring and compassionate. He listens to me. And pretty soon we're thinking, you know, this was nice while we had it. This was nice for a while. It made me happy, but I'm not sure I'm happy anymore. And I don't know, I've been doing this flipping over, flipping over so many times. We've tried so many different things. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to last. And so we set it aside and we go looking for something else, don't we? You know, there's another way. There's another way to keep the sand moving, isn't there? What's the other way? The other way is to pour into it. It's to add sand. Hopefully I will not be losing time here. To pour into it. And I think that's the message. That's the message is to pour into your marriage. Pour into it. Invest in it. 
Instead of saying, you know, I'm not sure I married the right person. Is this the right person? You be the right person. You know, she really changed. He's really changed. You be the right person. And rather than saying, you know, I'm not happy, haven't been happy for a long time, and the main reason is because he, because she, how about let's move happiness out of the number one spot and let's say, what does God want? And let's take a hard look in the mirror and say, am I submitting to my spouse? Am I yielding to him or to her? What are you investing? What kind of time are you investing? What kind of emotional energy are you investing? What kind of spiritual blessings are you bringing to the relationship? Are you going to the relationship just to receive everything or are you going into it to give? Yeah, but you can only give so much. I understand. And ideally, a husband and a wife both pour into the marriage. I mean, when that happens, that is a beautiful God-honoring union. But we do live in a broken world, and we aren't perfect. And so sometimes our spouse doesn't do that. Does that mean we shouldn't? No. You pour into your marriage. You make those difficult choices of submitting, of putting his or her needs, desires, wants before your own. You say, how can I honor God in this situation? What does God want, not what do I want? Now, of course, I am not saying, and the Bible doesn't say, to pour into a marriage, to stay into a marriage in such a way that you enable an abusive relationship. No, no. Or that you enable a covenant-breaking relationship. That's not what we're talking about here. And for most of us, that's not the case. That's not the situation. For most of us, it's selfishness and busyness and distractions and looking at the wrong things as the most important things. And so let me ask you, what are you contributing to your marriage? That's a different way to say it. What are you contributing right now to your marriage? What are you investing in that relationship? What are you giving, yielding, submitting? How are you pouring into your marriage? With your time, with your emotional energy, with your attitude, with your resources. You know, you have an opportunity to affirm and to bless your spouse by your words and your actions and your attitude. That's a way you can pour into your marriage. You have an opportunity to instill security, which is so important in marriage, to instill security in your spouse's mind by showing, demonstrating that you're there. And you have this long view, this long view of marriage, that it truly is until death separates us. When you demonstrate that, not just by your words, but by your actions, that creates a sense of, uni- of, of security in your spouse. That's so important. What are you contributing to your marriage right now? As we conclude, I think it's so important for us to say that there's always hope. No matter where your marriage is, maybe you're divorced right now, maybe you're separated, there's always hope, there's always redemption. Last week, if you were here, you know that we said that having an affair is not the unforgivable sin, looking at porn and lusting is not the unforgivable sin, Premarital sex is not the unforgivable sin. And so today we should add, 
Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Now, I will tell you, Scripture says God hates divorce, and he does. And as you know, it is messy, it is painful for many people. It has a ripple effect. But there is still hope. There can still be forgiveness. There can still be restoration. God does not give up on you just because your marriage is suffering or because you're divorced. Look at Jesus' genealogy. Look at Matthew 1 sometime. It lists Jesus' genealogy. And just take a look at some of the people there. I mean, you talk about dysfunctional. Relational, relational pain, sexual sin. Rahab was a former prostitute. You know David's story. He lusted. He had an affair. He killed the woman's husband. And yet, God used all of them, all of that mess and pain, as painful, as messy as it was, and nobody wants it. God doesn't want it. And yet, what did God bring about? He brought about Jesus. You see, that's what God does. He brings light into darkness. He brings hope where there is no hope. And so I don't know where you are this morning, but if you're in a place where you're broken because of a broken marriage, then the only hope you have is Jesus. Maybe you need to confess, confess to God. Maybe you need to confess to someone else, to your family, to your church family. We'd be happy to support you in that and pray for you. Maybe you need to resolve to make some changes. You can't control your spouse. Yes, ideally, both husband and wife pour into the marriage, but you can't control him or her. You can control you. And so maybe it's time for you to really be honest with yourself and say, I need to make some changes. I need to stop giving myself to everything else and give myself to him or to her. Spend some time in prayer. God will show you the way. Have the faith to walk the path that he puts in front of you. I can assure you it is a path of faithfulness, of discipleship. If we can encourage you today, let us do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me. You can just exit out these doors, go there. They'll encourage you. They'll pray for you. Um, that's an opportunity. Or you can come down to the front, and we will do that as a church family. Or maybe today you're ready to make that wonderful decision to give your life to Christ. You've come to church for a while, or maybe you've just heard the good news and you realize this is real. This is what I want. This is what I need. You were created for a life with Christ. And so maybe today you're ready to put him on in baptism, to put him on in faith. We'd love to celebrate with you. We'd love to help you with that. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing now. Let's stand.